This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonisation and genocide are ongoing processes that still continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey there, welcome back to Ozpol Snackpod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies serve you up bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a side of crispy memes. My name is Zach Snack, and with me, as always, is friend, confidant, and member of my inner sanctum. Hey, it's noon. It certainly is. Um, <laughs> I've had a bit of a busy week, noon. I haven't been keeping up with the news as much as I would have liked to, but I'm guessing... Not much happened, slow news week, um, not a lot going on. Absolutely wrong, Zach. Every week there's too much damn news. Every single ah, week. Wrong again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and There is too much damn news. Yeah, I, I also just wanted to mention uh, up top, last week we, uh, we uh, promised our listeners that we would be, quote, back to our usual format. And um, that's not true. Uh, we have another great guest interview, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I spoke... Uh, earlier to activist and academic David Kelly about this new big social housing spending announcement that the Victorian government has made. Uh, And he drops a a whole lot of knowledge about public Mm. housing uh, and social housing in general, which uh, I think is fascinating. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear that interview later on. So stay tuned for that. Um, But, you know, we're closer to our normal format. We're not talking about the Bible this week, or at least I don't plan to. Yeah, Mm. We will continue to shit on Stuart Robert, though. So that's like a through line Mm -hmm. from last week. Um, So, you know, uh, take it as it comes, swings swings and roundabouts. Um, We do have a lot of... uh, I was going to say, it turns out uh, some people apparently enjoyed the Jesus episode because we got two new patrons. So shout-outs to Meet the Guy with a Head, just not where you want it to be. Uh, Classic name. Familiar with that one, of course. We all know someone with that yep. name. Yeah, and Caitlin, which is a pretty <laughs> strange and outlandish <laughs> one. <laughs> Sorry, that was. I felt, I felt like that was that was impeccable comic timing. Thank you, Caitlin, and meet the guy with the head not, just not where you want it to be. The classic comedy double act, and also massive cuties who signed out to our Patreon. We appreciate it. Uh, we have a jam-packed show full of. Largely heavy pretty stories. intense stories yeah. this yeah. week, yeah. But we thought we'd start off with something a little fluffy, Noon. Yeah, this is just about like rising, rising international death. tensions, the death penalty. And the death penalty, <laughs> you know, classic comedy <laughs> comedy material. Uh, yeah, I love so, being a comedy news podcast. It, uh, <laughs> it's so easy. It's yeah. constant, nothing but smooth sailing, yeah. Um, Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, went to Japan, uh, which is kind of a big deal in a boring international relations kind of way because this is the first overseas trip that he's done since the coronavirus pandemic started. And uh, he's now had to do like a two-week quarantine upon re-entering the country. Um, And so it's kind of like him being like, hey, Japan, you're so important to us. I'm going to fucking quarantine myself, even though he... Probably could have just done a Zoom meeting, and um, he doesn't. He doesn't like Zooms. If he can't travel, he won't. Remember when he refused to go to the national cabinet meeting? Well, now he has he to do like, two weeks of national cabinet meetings on Zoom because he's <laughs> fucking quarantining. So, anyway. trying to say that he could have done that whenever he chose. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Interesting. Uh, but the sort of 
general public opinion about this is that the point of this is uh, to signal that Australia is very interested in our relationship with Japan. Uh, we're expanding military ties and economic ties, and specifically that we're both worried about China. Uh, and this visit comes just after the Chinese embassy released a, lift, a list of grievances that they have with Australia, um, which contained basically only things that absolutely under no circumstances are going to stop, like are going to change. So, for example, uh, removing the foreign interference legislation for every Chinese citizen, or things like that, uh, and like just like completely get rid of all tariffs like like pretty pretty extreme things that like are not reasonable requests that neither the liberals or labor party interested in um and so the point of it is basically just to them be like we're mad and it's your fault uh and so this is i love the 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 release of the list of grievances as like a diplomatic measure as well like (laughs) just posting on your facebook i really have got a problem i've got problems with noon here's a list of them yeah with this what you will yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and um, <laughs> something interesting that's not very important, but like came out in an interview I was listening to this week. Apparently, we basically only have like one-way communication with the Chinese government. Their ministers can call our ministers, but our ministers can only call their like vice secretary of the department heads, like planning <laughs> get fobbed off. bureau, yeah. and so they can't really. To, like respond they just gave us all. a fake number like <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah uh so anyway skomo has gone to japan they're basically being like we'll be allies when if anything happens with china uh but like uh, we're not officially allies i think but there's a bunch of like agreements about military cooperation yeah, this is a reciprocal access agreement exactly and on the note of the reciprocal access agreement as you mentioned zach the hilarious part of this whole story is that uh japan still has the death penalty and that it seems like under the, <laughs> under the reciprocal access agreement thanks access agreement <laughs> australian soldiers will be in japan under japanese law and might be subject to the death penalty and mm. um what could be more funny than that, of course. But um, there is this, like, <laughs> uh, bleak moment from a press conference that is like a, it's like a Clark and Door script. Such a stereotype to say that, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> should we just read it, like, a little bit of that, Zach? All right. Do you want to be journalist or prime minister in this little play? I'd quite like to be the prime minister, if that's okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll do my best journalist impression. Prime Minister. No, that's terrible. All right, um... <laughs> I, lo- I love the concept. But... <laughs> yeah, just pretend I'm doing that voice. Yeah. Okay. Prime Minister, under the reciprocal access agreement in the in-principle agreement signed today, will Australian troops be subject to the death penalty in Japan? Well, uh, what we've been able to achieve is that Australia will meet all of its obligations under its international agreements in relation to uh, that matter. Uh, it's a yes or no question. What's the answer? Sorry, I'm just not clear. That's always been the the hurdle in this over the death penalty. Uh, no, we've been able to resolve it uh, by ensuring that Australia could satisfy all of our international obligations in relation to uh, that matter, and that has been a key factor for us as we work through uh, this issue. And we're pleased that we uh, that that was able to be worked through with the Japanese government. And I thank both Prime Minister Suga and his predecessor Prime Minister Abe for getting us to that point. So there has been progress over the issue of the death penalty. The progress of ensuring that Australia is able to meet its commitments 
Under its international <laughs> obligations, yes. Can you just explain what that is? That's exactly what I just explained to you. <laughs> I, I think we I'm should not, probably. Uh, I'm not cut. Cl- that's like, yeah. It goes on. <laughs> it goes on. Uh, this um, I just like this uh, next line from the from the journalist. I'm not. I'm not clear how the document sets that out. Question mark. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it's embarrassing shit. Um, it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's a amazing, uh, real as you say, real classic Clark and Door stuff. There was a good Simpsons meme as well, uh, along the lines of, um, what is it? it's like, um, and uh, we're very upset about as Mayor Quimby being like, we're very upset about the Japanese death penalty, and then um, someone comes up and gives him a bag full of money. Is like, here's the report on Australian war crimes in Afghanistan. <laughs> that this could really not have come at a worse time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We will talk more about that other extremely funny story later on. Um, but now, let's turn to a legitimately kind of amusing story, our coronavirus news. Hey, man, I've got some more beers. Oh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. No, come on, we're having another round of coronas. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I would classify this as amusing either. I mean, there's, like, there's something, I guess, slightly funny about it, but... It's just, it's taken ever darker turns. You're right. I mean, look, honestly, it's good news that the state doesn't have to be in lockdown. But I, I'm, ber- I'm. What's the opposite of burying the lead? I'm like, I'm jumping ahead here. Um, Jump, jumping so, the shark. I don't want to get into that particular debate. I feel like we've had that on air before and we, I lost. So we have. Uh, I, I, let me bury that lead again and let you take the lead on this story. So South Australia went into a very hard lockdown uh, from Thursday. It was meant to be for six days after two new unexpected cases, um, bringing the state of coronavirus. Up to 22 of, of coronavirus, yep. And then on Friday, it was announced that it would end Saturday night, which is last night as of the time of release of this episode, three days early because um, it turned out that one of the cases had told the contractors something incorrect, which was that he said... Contact he- traces. What did I say, sorry? You said, you said contractors. Sorry, Which I can con- understand how how that would happen. I mean, they might be. I think they are in a in Victoria. But anyway, they'd told oh, yeah, contact true. traces that he had bought a pizza uh, at a place when actually he'd been working there. Um, yeah, yeah, and I've I've put in this note here, noon that this poor like pizza person mm. has now had a twenty po- a, a twenty person strong police task force that's been set up to investigate this matter. It's just ridiculous. So, I mean, look, it's good that there didn't need to be the hard lockdown because basically mm. they thought it was a case of like casual community transmission where somebody yep. walked into a pizza shop, walked out with Corona. But in fact, it was a close contact. He'd been and like so hanging out less... in the room making pizza yeah, or whatever. With they him. were yeah. working in the place. And yeah, I mean, a lot of like pretty fucking high ranking journalists, particularly mm. from the ABC, actually, I've noticed. Being like, oh, imagine being the person who puts South Australia into lockdown by lying. Like, th- and why do you think that this go- this person did that? It was worried he's gonna get fucking lose his Centrelink benefits and like probably get fired or whatever, and might get hounded for the shifts that he's been working for the last six weeks without reporting into the tax office or whatever. Like, that's what I assumed there, he was. There, lying a million for. reasons, or maybe we don't know very much about this person no. at this stage. But maybe they were trying to avoid that. Maybe they've seen what happened to other people who have been found to breach COVID regulations and the mm. massive media pylon that happened. Or maybe they wanted to avoid. A fucking police task force being set up to investigate them. Yeah, um, but 
something so, that I know, worry about, which I'm sure has come up at some point in Victoria, but like, you know, I would never commit a crime, Zach, but if someone went to see some kind of drug dealer, for example, and then there was some kind of positive corona case related to it, I'm not sure what, you know, that would be a, 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 a pickle. It would be a tough spot. It'd be, it'd be a bit of a pickle. And, but, like, at the end of the day, like, I mean, drug deals aside, whether or not you, you can refer to that as a casualized employment or not is probably mm. a conversation for another episode. But, like, this is gets to the fundamental issue that's been at the heart of almost all transmission of COVID cases at this point, which is that people in insecure, underpaid work who have to work other jobs are always, they're, like, they're going to be spreading. They can't afford to stay home they're not making enough money <laughs> to yep. just work one job they're going to spread it because this conversation was happening around uh one of the security guards who uh for in hotel quarantine in south australia who was found to have been working a second job mm. and uh, transmitted the virus and again people were like oh why can't the police like force this these security guards to only work one job like what the fuck kind of response is yeah, that? Yeah. Why isn't why isn't the question why they why aren't these people getting paid enough to not need mm, to work another mm. job? Anyway, we're having the same. Fu- it's so circular. Yep. Like it feels like in some ways we've learned nothing from Victoria. But anyway, they dodged a bullet. South Australia yeah, dodged a absolutely. bullet on this one. God, I just hope that the response to this can like look at the systems that make this happen next time, as opposed to piling onto a single individual. Mm. But, you know. I don't. I don't have particularly high hopes for that. Stupid just bullshit what should country. Happen. Yeah. Mm. Fuck you, Australia. Mm. Uh, just anyway. before we get off, Corona's Victoria's had three weeks with no new cases. Woo. <laughs> Woo. Okay, that's a nice positive note to end on, noon. Yeah. And it's now time for our positivity corner. Positivity corner. Which? Yes. Um. So. I need to give a content warning at the top of this positivity corner for mentions of sexual assault and child sexual abuse. I promise that it is ultimately a good story, uh, but a heads up for that. We'll put time codes in the notes for if you want to skip over this section. But this is an update on the Let Us Speak campaign, which we've shouted out before, um, uh, which is a campaign against laws in Victoria that was supposedly aimed at protecting the identities of victim survivors of sexual assault. But in effect, it made it illegal for victim survivors to use their real name publicly when telling their mm. own story. And that includes uh, discussing it on social media as well. So this is a, this is a campaign led by Nina Funnel, um, who has been an advocate on uh, on these kinds of issues for a long time, uh, and that was it was done in collaboration with End Rape on Campus Australia and Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy, uh, and so they've had success in Victoria with the passing of what's called Jamie's Law, um, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, Jamie Lee Page, who this law is named after, and her story is. Uh, pretty horrific, uh, mm. but it's ultimately, as I say, you know, we've, in this case, there's been a good outcome for her. So she, Jamie Lee Page, has been fighting to reveal her name publicly for eight months uh, to tell her story. And she and her sister were sexually abused as children by their father called David Hodson. And he later went on to kill Jamie's sister, Carol, mm. because she was going to testify in court about what he had done to them as children. Now, Hodson was sentenced for Carol's murder but not for the sexual assault. 
um, because only Carol had come forward and, of course, she couldn't testify. Um, so when Hodson was due for release, Jamie Lee Page decided to go public with her story but found that she had been gagged by this law which said that she was not allowed to use her name. Uh, so she wasn't able to, she wasn't allowed to publicly identify herself. She also wasn't allowed to name her sister or use her father's name because either of those could have identified wow. her by extension. So she wasn't allowed to tell any of this. And, you know, mm. she, her concern was that her father was about to be released from prison and he had never actually been publicly either yeah. charged or convicted with these things that he had done. But so she, uh, she, she was fighting this uh, in, in the courts for about eight months um, and kind of as part and parcel of the Let Us Speak campaign. Mm -hmm. So I think Nina Funnel described Jamie's case as kind of like the spearhead of the campaign. Uh, and she won her court case this week. And then later in the week, Victorian Parliament amended this law to allow victim survivors who are over 18 to legally identify themselves with their real names in the media and on social right. media. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is an example of a really hard run advocacy mm, campaign. Absolutely, uh, real credit to Nina Funnel who has been doing you know amazing work on this, and of course to Jamie herself who yeah. really you know she put herself on the line emotionally and psychologically to be the person fighting this in court. Um, that you know, given everything that she's been through, mm. obviously this would have been just an unimaginably difficult process for her. I've got a quote uh, from a Mamma Mia article that interviewed her that I wanted to read. She said, I'm someone that is my own harshest critic, and I never think that I've done anything good, but I'm actually really proud of myself. I just feel really good about it. She isn't thanking the justice system, though. Her thanks is directed at Nina and the media organizations that have supported her, as well as the lawyers who have stood up in court for her. Uh, and then another quote from Jamie saying, they are the people that have provided me with justice, not the legal system. They put up nothing but barriers, mm -hmm. she said. Um, so... I mean, I think the obvious kind of moral of this story is consult and listen to the actual people that you claim that you're trying mm. to protect when you're drafting legislation. I don't know why that needs to be said. I don't know why that isn't just very obvious. But yeah. if they had like asked anybody who this was actually going to be affecting, like a million red flags would have gone up, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I, look, I, this is a, a great win for this campaign against an absolutely absurd law. Um, and uh, yeah, it's nice to see someone get a win, even mm. if it's just repealing something fucked that should have never should happened never in the been, first place. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, a really sad story, but also a good outcome. Um, on, yeah. Yeah, on a number of levels. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our First Nations stories. Um, I've got a few um, brief ones here. The first one um, is that there's a, this organization called Family Matters who's just released their yearly report. Um, which they've been doing for the last couple of years. Uh, this is from their website. Family Matters aims to eliminate the over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out-of-home care by 2040. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, the, the organization looks at uh, children who are being removed from their families, and um, basically it's really, really bad news. Uh, so this is from a Guardian article about the report. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children make up 37% of the total out-of-home care population, but are only 6% Fuck. of the total child population in Australia. So that's, that's so bad. just about six times over-representation. Wow. Um, and 81% of those First Nation children in out-of-home care are on so-called long-term guardianship orders, which means that they'll be in state care until they're 18, and often those 
children will never see their family again. Um, And, of course, with this, you know, severing of the family comes all sorts of other trauma and, like, disconnection from cultural knowledge and land and obviously just, like, the trauma of being removed from your parents and and everything that goes with that and living in out-of-home care. Um, the report is quite detailed, um, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes because there's a lot there that I haven't covered. But yeah, I think um, it's sort of a truism at this point, unfortunately, or maybe it's not. But I, I'm not sure how widespread this is, but you know, I've seen a couple of articles with this headline or whatever that the stolen generation never stopped; it's only ever increased. Um, yeah. And this yeah, absolutely, is a the, the proportion of, of removals is actually now higher than it was. You know, at the time of the stolen generation. That's right. And one of the things this report talks about is the way the like alarming rate at which children being removed from their families is accelerating. Uh, mm. And they believe that the number of children will double by, I think it was 2040 or 2050. I'm sorry, I don't have that number right here. But yeah, again, um, go look up the Family Matters report. There's a good Guardian article and we'll post a link to the actual report um, in the show notes, which is uh, long, but readable, especially the like summaries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what what was the next First Nations story that you had on the list noon? So yeah, I wanted to um, touch on the Jabberung legal hearings. Uh, and of mm-hmm. course, we covered this a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed Senator Lydia Thorpe. Um, basically, there's this court case to determine the outcome about this um, proposed new road that's going to be built and um, a number of important um, First Nations sites and trees there. Uh, and there's been a couple of week recess in that court case to give both sides a chance to prepare their, you know, evidence and witnesses and so on. Um, and so something that's uh, just come out in the last couple of days of this, uh, you know, recently restarted hearings is that the lawyer representing the Jabberung people, a guy called Mr. Ron Merkel, um, he's arguing that the entire area is sacred and should be protected, not just these uh, five or six particularly important trees which is what many Jabberung people have been saying all along yeah uh and that was an important thing that the uh, opposing like the government lawyer was saying last time uh before the three-week recess was that it was really unclear whether the import whether the area was important or not and that basically on that basis the whole issue was like unsound or whatever but it seems like that that has not mm. held up uh so i just wanted mm. to read a quote here from mr merkel um Uh, who I think is a QC, he said... QC? He's a QC. Yeah. Uh, We are concerned here with spiritual and metaphysical relationships between people and their land. When you go to the evidence, there's no dispute amongst any experts. The specified area is an area of cultural significance to the Aboriginal people. Colonization has had dramatic effects in 200 years of destroying much of that association for many Aboriginal people, including their own identification as a people. Uh, and he also argued that the Eastern Ma Aboriginal Corporation that approved the works were paid by the government and that that creates a conflict of interest, uh, which is kind of huge. <laughs> I'm not like... Yeah, I'd uh, fucking say it does. I'm, well, sure, but I'm not an expert in this. Maybe we can get Amina, our mod from the Facebook group, to help with this. But um, uh, it seems like this might potentially provide a precedent that completely undermines the entire native title Aboriginal corporation system. Because, uh, yeah. like, a whole bunch of the point of that is that the government gives those corporations resources and including money, uh, mm. and that they're also the ones that control the land. So, like, yeah, anyway, 
Um, maybe we'll try and get someone who actually knows what they're talking about to uh, yeah, give us some more on that, but um, more yeah. on the Jaburong hearings as they continue. Uh, and finally, um, this is just a, another very brief one, which is sort of an interesting contrast to the last uh, story, which is that two gigaliters of water has been allocated to the Gunai Kurnai Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation, uh, which is an Aboriginal corporation that represents the Gunai Kurnai um, people uh, in Victoria. It's unclear mm-hmm. how this two gigaliters is going to be accessed or like how that uh, allocation is going to be implemented. Uh, but it still seems pretty cool, but also, obviously, it was already theirs, theirs anyway, the and, like, two gigaliters out of however many, uh, however many are running down the river, like, it's gross. It's <laughs> yeah. just gross giving the, the, back the this context tiny is little... Fucked. Yeah. The context is fucked, but take it where you can get it right in these cases uh, where things are marginally less fucked at a time. So I, as as I say, it's not clear how this is going to be accessed or implemented. The decision has just been okay. to allocate this water. But you know how when we talk about the Murray-Darling Basin or whatever, where there's the issues about cotton farmers taking more than their allocations and mm. yada, yada, yada. And basically this means there's going to be two gigaliters of water that the Gunaikunai Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation decides what to do with. How um, to use it. Gotcha. And so that might mean like... I'm not sure, protected fishing or like to like divert it to ensure that certain waterways like have enough water going down them or what, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's not clear yet, but I think there's probably like a range of things and it's going to be decided in consultation with the Aboriginal Corporation. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. All right. Uh, now it's time to move on to Fashy Australia. And, uh, I mean, this has been a story that's been ongoing for, well, really, years. And one that Noon and I have, like, constantly been putting a pin in, like, oh, we'll talk about this later, I'll talk about this next week. Gets cut for time. Um, too much damn news. Yeah, and we, again, there's too much damn news this week, so we don't have time to go into it a huge amount, but, you know, we do, <laughs> we did, we did want to touch on it, so... Yes. Uh, Noon, do you want to take us through this one? Yeah, so this has really been the big story this week, which is that a very heavily redacted report uh, has come out into war crimes um, allegedly committed by Australian troops in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm not sure we actually need to say allegedly at this point. Um, but yeah, so the, yeah, the, think so. the report um, lists a lot of very disgusting behaviour, um, the main issue being killing of civilians or prisoners, both of which are war crimes, and also like... Um, what's the term they use? It's not torture, but like extremely inappropriate conduct or something along those. Oh, like I, I can't remember the term. I don't have it here. But like basically yeah, torturing right. some people. Um, some of the things that was in this report include a practice of so-called blooding, where new recruits were like basically given a prisoner or a civilian to murder so that they would have killed someone, um, like as their first kill. Um. There was, which all- is also a like a method of basically guaranteeing their silence and complicity when they witness yeah. other atrocities. Totally, like, yeah. You're now, yeah, like, and also you- like trauma bonding and all sorts of other things. Yeah, that people who are trained to kill people for a living are de- like definitely going to do if they're allowed to operate with complete impunity. Yep. Um, they have disfigured corpses. In particular, cutting off hands came up. 
Um, there was one particularly disturbing thing that was actually in the news a couple of weeks ago, which was that there was a, a, a situation where an Australian soldier shot one of a series of prisoners so that they could all fit on a helicopter. Um, and there was this fucked audio um, footage of, you know, uh, someone being like, uh, we only got six seats here, gunshot. All right, we're coming aboard. Um, and that was actually yeah. with a non-Australian helicopter person who was uh, one of the, the witnesses. Anyway. Yeah, a few of the whistleblowers and witnesses have been US soldiers, mm. um, which is just kind of a little bit like even the Yanks that are over there are like looking at these Australian <laughs> SAS soldiers and being like, yeah, okay, that's a bit much even up. for us. Yeah. Like, I mean, and we're talking about like SAS, the Australian SAS troops have been over there like flying Nazi flags off mm, their vehicles mm-hmm. and shit as well. Like, this is just in no fucking way surprising. I mean, literally, what are they yeah. over there to do? Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, yes, my next note was really very horrifying and to me at least totally unsurprising stuff. Um, everyone's yeah, been think... like very quick to like leap to the defense of our diggers and it's just a few bad apples and like sure the vast majority of people probably weren't committing war crimes or at least certainly not that was indicated in this report though i mean we'll see but, but like we, what are they there even those who are not committing quote-unquote war crimes what are they fucking there doing why are we in something that has been in a lot with. of the reportage recently has been about so-called fog of war which i understood that concept from video games meaning literally bits of the map you can't see uh, but in yeah. the uh, apparently what it actually means in the military context is that like sometimes you accidentally shoot people uh, and that's okay. Um, and then but, you accidentally plant a gun on their body. Right. And then you well, accidentally go kill the witnesses. The, the point in the particular article I was thinking of was that they were like, this was not fog of war. This was them deliberately murdering people in cold blood who were like already prisoners. And fog of war is like when you're in the hot battle, someone runs across and you shoot them and it's not. Yeah, an evil I think brown that's person right, or whatever, you know, you know yeah. But, a lot of these incidents were were exactly that. You, they're not it's not in, in in even like a a the context of a firefight. Exactly. It's in yeah. the context of you've got a bunch of people tied up and blindfolded. Right. Anyway, this is something that needs um further investigation and there's yep. a, like you've got as we we touched on the broader issue there of like <laughs> The idea that we are we have a military presence in Afghanistan is fucked to begin with. Yeah. Um. And as you like, yeah, you put trained killers in this situation and continually, repeatedly dehumanize the mm. people that 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 live in that country. What the fuck do you think is going to happen? But yeah, hopefully, um, we can get deeper into that on a subsequent episode. Totally. But thanks for that quick overview of um of that report this week. All right, um, should we move on to our next segment? You fucked up. Yes, and I'll let you decide uh, who exactly fucked up here, because mm-hmm. you've got a couple options. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've actually awarded the government you fucked up for robo-debt before, because yes. it is a fuck-up of colossal proportions. Um, but there's been some RoboDebt news this week. So RoboDebt, for those who aren't familiar, uh, was this scheme where Centrelink would issue automated debt notices. Uh, Many of them turned out to be illegal. Many of them were incorrect. Many people were forced to pay unlawful welfare debts Mm. that didn't exist. Many of the people pursued were, of course, homeless or had poor mental health or disabilities because these are people who are on government assistance. Uh, And there have been reports 
uh, from the families of people who have died by suicide after receiving robo-debt notices. So I think that we can pretty solidly say that there are several suicides mm. that, are that are attributable to the robo-debt scheme, for sure. Uh, but so a class action lawsuit has been in the works for a while and it's been uh, brought by Slater and Gordon. And I, my, I, I see, my, my interpretation is that they're essentially like Labor's law firm, right? Yeah, is that yeah a pretty much. Yeah. Fair there's, assessment? There's two. There's yeah. Slater and Gordon and Morris Blackburn, and they're both right. basically Labor yeah, law firms. At least yeah. strongly Labor affiliated. And and also um, uh, lowercase L, Labor, as in like they do like... Yeah, Labor lawsuits labor and law. this kind of thing and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so... The government has uh, agreed to a $1.2 billion settlement um, to 400,000 victims, or even more than 400,000 victims, actually. Um, but that kind of doesn't break down exactly as you mm. might think. Um, most of that money, most of that figure is actually from the government's earlier announcement in, I think it was May, that they would repay and wipe these right, illegal debts. Right. How magnanimous of them. Mm-hmm. Um so the actual compensation that is uh, included in this $1.2 billion settlement is just over $100 million. Individual compensation amounts vary a lot. The general average seems likely to be about 280 bucks, huh. uh, minus legal costs. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. are going to get taken out of the compensation. So the thing about settling the case is there won't actually be uh, a trial. Mm-hmm. There won't be an airing out of the details of this scheme in a courtroom. So we're not going to, it's not going to be litigated in terms of who knew when that the scheme was illegal, how long the scheme has continued after people were told that it was illegal. And I think, and this is crucial, I think, as part of this settlement, and I'm going to use the words here of the very holy and honorable Mm -hmm, Stuart Robert mm -hmm. MP, uh, and we'll follow in his footsteps. He says, the government, quote, has not accepted or admitted any liability in the matter. So... The government has basically continued to make this absolutely fucked mm-hmm. policy, which resulted in actual deaths just fucking disappear. Nobody held accountable. And there are several top ministers, including Scott Morrison, yeah. Stuart Robert himself, and particularly involved. Alan Tudge. Yeah, whose fingerprints are all over this fucking thing. And this is what, I mean, this is some of the most direct, like, crushing of the poor that this government does. I have heard people speculate that one of the reasons that there's basically no chance of anything better than this particular outcome going on is because Scott Morrison was directly involved with it. And so any kind of ministerial responsibility would like implicitly also dob him in. So he basically can't get Stuart Robert in trouble for it or whoever else. Well, yeah, I mean, there's clearly, whatever the motivation, there's no mm, appetite mm. for that within the government at all. Not that there would be anyway. No, of Like, course, they've managed like, to get off... Yeah. Yeah. Like, this has been ongoing for fucking ages, and nobody's been held held accountable. Mm. Uh, and this class action, unfortunately, for a lot of people who were ripped off by the fucking government or and made to go through, like, intense psychological mm. trauma and financial hardship for no fucking reason... This doesn't. This isn't justice for them, and you know the, the the government's kind of like continued ability to just 
shirk responsibility for mm. this. In this case, it's been helped along by a, this Labour-aligned legal firm. And, of course, Labour is going to be basking in the glory of this result, yeah, yeah. saying that they've gotten justice. They, they keep complaining about for, how for guy. it spent $1.2 billion, as if that's what the issue with the scheme was, was that it cost the government money. <sighs> Which is so fucking wrong-headed. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, so, you know... Labour kind of swinging in at the last minute, being like, hey, yeah, the people's hero, when, of course, they've done, as usual, basically fucking nothing, as far as I can tell. Uh, so that's pretty fucking disappointing. Um, a trial would have been good to mm, to mm-hmm. at least get a little bit of, like, public discussion about totally. who in the government was, was responsible for this. But I think, look, in, in the absence of that, we can just hold the Liberal Party collectively responsible for these people's deaths. And, and like until yep. <laughs> yeah i think that's totally fair hmm so at the end of that who fucked up uh yeah you're right there are a wide and ex- extensive list of people that we could we could choose from i yeah. think i will the go with party? Stuart robert just for like you know personal reasons fuck that yeah day. i mean fuck him in particular mm, mm. fuck alan tudge fuck scott morrison mm, fuck the mm-hmm. liberal party Fuck the Labour Party and They're fuck Slater Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that about sums it up. Cool. Well, let's move on to Shitpost of the Week. Shitpost of the Week. Ah, oh, okay. The, yeah, there's the heavy the heavy stuff done. Uh, well, there's a little bit in the interview, but... For the know, most part. It's, it's, it's pretty listenable. Yeah, uh, so... This week, uh, Kira Janali has been shitposting up a storm in the Ospol shitposting Facebook group. Um, and I mean, they, actually, they are a professional shitposter. That's true. A yeah, yeah. God level shitposter. They're the mod over it. Beautiful, talented, and deadly. If you're not already aware, now you're aware. Yeah. Um, it's been kind of. Like, I think they're under a bit of a, like a shadow ban. They've been sort of like it's been ongoing for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So like, go and support the page. And um, they actually self-nominated. A meme for shitpost of the week, uh, which uh, they said, I know Funkenstein, which is me on Facebook, uh, give me shitpost of the week or fight me. And I absolutely do not want to fight Kira, but I couldn't give it to them for the particular meme that they self-nominated, uh, which was ScoMo at his barre class, uh, if that's I'm saying that correctly, which I'm probably not, but um, looking slightly uncomfortable uh, in a weird kind of like you know, position as he stretches or whatever. And it, there was a joke about Engadine Mackers, which, yeah, it's a classic joke, I guess. It's just not really my thing. But what is my thing is this other meme that they made uh, on and posted on Beautiful, Talented, Deadly and shared into Ospol shitposting, which I have revisited multiple times since they published it uh, and, and just <laughs> absolutely love. Uh, it ties in so many of my favorite things. Uh, and so this is a scene from The Simpsons, uh, the one where Lisa goes over to Nelson's house uh, and he has, like, nuke the whales on the wall. And, yeah, uh, and poster, a poster on his wall, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like, it, do you really believe that? Uh, <laughs> like, oh, gotta nuke gotta something. Gotta nuke something. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. Um, but it's uh, Kira has redone it, so Lisa is looking at Tom Tanaki's wall, uh, noted <laughs> shit poster Tom Tanaki and, and host of The Pork and Feed the Birds. Um and the posters on the wall say, Fusk, uh, fuck musk sticks, they suck. I also <laughs> don't like the Simpsons and love Daddy Nadine, though. Um, 
which are As all in Nadine Shamali. Nadine Shamali, another noted lefty Australian ship poster. Uh, and uh, Lisa says, "Fuck musk sticks." You don't really believe that, do you? And, and then <laughs> cuts over to Tom Tanaki sitting on the bed. Is a very adorable little Photoshop of him as Nelson. I love it. And he says, <laughs> "Yes." Also, fuck weird flavored milks. <laughs> and I love this because I hate musk sticks. I'm outraged that Tom Tanaki doesn't like The Simpsons. And as Kira said, everyone loves our daddy Nadine Shamali. So, anyway, this is just a, yeah. a beautiful, cromulent meme about some of Australia's foremost. Uh, yeah, sh- shit posters. Um, All coming together in one meme. It's. I'd also like to shout to out Tom's uh, Melbourne Fringe show, which oh, yeah. I watched this week, White Trader, which is about um, like Nazi occultism, basically. Mm. And uh, in Tom's usual style, it's full of... Uh, it's hilarious, extremely informative, and uh, just chock-a-block with jokes that made me extremely uncomfortable. Mm. Um, I don't know if that show is continuing to run next week i should have looked that up before i'm mentioning pretty sure it, but yeah yeah and i think but check it out yeah. white trader at the at melbourne fringe if you can still get a ticket which by the way they pay what you can so nice. no one turned away for lack of funds highly recommend checking it out uh fantastic work kira and shouts to tom and nadine okay well that brings us to the end of our news content um and we're gonna head over to the interview that you did with david kelly zach yeah, um, so this is about this big, the what the Victorian government is calling the big housing build, which is a, a massive spending announcement they've made of $5.3 billion. Uh, and the kind of top line stuff is it's going to be producing a whole lot more social housing. Or so, this, the, so they've claimed this announcement has uh, been met with a basically completely positive response mm. in the media. As far as I can tell, several peak bodies and non-government organizations have also spoken about it kind of glowingly, including the Australian Council of Social Services. Um, but it's bad. as we'll get into in the interview, <laughs> uh, there is very good reason to be skeptical of it. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy this interview with David Kelly and I apologize for my repeated bad mathematics during this conversation. Hi, David. Uh, welcome to OzPol Snackpod. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. Um, so we've brought you on to talk about uh, this new big social housing funding announcement that uh, the Victorian government has made. Uh, but before we get into that, would you mind giving us a brief introduction to yourself and your work in this area yeah sure so um I'm david kelly i'm a research fellow at rmit for the center of urban research and there i'm doing research into public housing renewal programs and uh urban renewal programs that are based around greening um and previous to that i've worked in public housing policy analysis, um, did my PhD in remote Aboriginal housing and how policy affects remote communities and what activism springs up as a result of bad policy and, and how activists mm-hmm. can make some sort of difference to the course of policy. Um, and for the past, I suppose since 2014, I've been actively involved in activist campaigns against various housing policies. So that's including 
um, stop the closure of communities in the Kimberley region and more recently since 2016 against the Victorian government's public housing renewal program. So that's with the Save Public Housing Collective. Very cool. So there's you've obviously got the academic side, but you're very you're involved in the advocacy and activism as well on the ground. Yeah, um, which is uh, yeah, which is really why I wanted to bring you in and get your perspective on this. Um, so before we kind of dive into the discussion, I wondered if I could we could lay a bit of groundwork and discuss some of the terms that are that are used um, in this area because reading through some of the reports and stuff, there's like uh, a, a number of terms that get thrown around that I that I think there isn't a broad public understanding of. So you've got social housing, public housing community housing and affordable housing. I wonder if we could run through kind of what the distinction between those terms are, like what do they mean? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess starting with the umbrella term social housing, um, that's, it's a global term. It's used very commonly around the world. It's um, Mm -hmm. almost uncontroversial in different contexts around the world. In Australia, it's a bit different because what we're seeing now in the contemporary moment is social housing, the terminology being used to kind of, there's a bit of smoke and mirror um, situation, which kind of obscures the transfer of public housing stock over to the community housing sector. So under that umbrella term, social housing, you have public housing and community housing. Public housing is housing that is owned and managed by the state government uh-huh. or the minister, however you want to um, you know, frame it. Community housing is housing which is owned and or managed by a community housing provider who is not a government actor. Um, they are a private housing association. They are not-for-profit, but there are key differences between the two of them. So in public housing, you pay 20, if you're a resident, you pay 25% of your total income. In community housing, you pay 30% of your total income. On top of that, if you're in community housing, you then get charged service charges and uh, levies for different things. It might be taking out your bins, cleaning the lobby, maintenance, those sorts of things. And in community housing, they also take 100% of your Commonwealth rental assistance. Um, so basically, wow. it doesn't even go into your account. It just goes straight into the account of the Community Housing Association. <laughs> wow. Um, and there's a few other things, but you know that, that's kind of the headline things. Um, for mm. us, as researchers and activists, we're concerned that there are different rights um, if you're in public housing, the state has a legislated responsibility to adhere to the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. Mm-hmm. In community housing, they don't. So it's easier to be evicted in community housing. Um, it's easier to um, kind of come under the, um, I suppose, the judicial system. Like you can be taken to VCAT a lot easier. Um, generally they cherry pick their clients as well off the housing register. Um, and then one final point on the difference is 
public housing has to take 100% of its residents from the Victorian Housing Register. Mm. Community housing only has to take 75% of its residents from the community has- from the Victorian Housing Register, meaning that 25% of community housing is actually, um, you know, market properties. Like private rentals, basically. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that distinction in terms of how many people from the public housing or social housing waiting list, public and community housing uh, uh, take will become important later in our discussion. So that's a, yeah, an important seed to plant here. Um, And just in general, um, can you give us a bit of a, an overview of the current state of social housing in Victoria? I understand that we have the lowest proportion of social housing of any state in Australia. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. So our total social housing stock is 3.2% of the overall housing stock. Um, Mm -hmm. Public housing is about 2.5% of the overall, or 2.4, depending on which figures you take. It's kind of a bit Mm -hmm. fluid. But yes, we have the lowest proportion of social housing compared to any other state, um, very low ranking in terms of other OECD countries. So we're one of the lowest. Mm. Um, We also spend less money than any other state on ongoing costs. So per person who's in public housing or social housing, we spend $86, I think it is. um, But I think it's maybe per week, I can't remember exactly what the figure is, but around 86. And then in um, in New South Wales, for instance, it's about 160. So we spend about half of what New South Wales does on each resident who's in social housing. And that includes things like maintenance. So as a result, because we don't fund maintenance and we don't actually do maintenance, a lot of our stock is falling into disrepair. Um, mm. It's it's kind of aging out of its life cycle. And you mentioned earlier that some, that some of your work revolves around uh, public housing renewal programs. Mm. And I know that this has been kind of like the big ticket uh, social housing policy in Victoria for the last little while. Mm. Um, could you run us through uh, what a public housing renewal program is? Um, because I know that it's not happening just in Victoria, but it's a project that you see all over yeah. the world as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Public housing renewal, I think the best way to characterize where it happens, it's in Western liberal democracies that have some form of welfare system. They all have public housing estates and they all kind of build them around, you know, 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing around the world is demolishing them um, and replacing them with some form of social mix so they are usually 100% public housing, demolish them, move the people on, and then build in its place 70% private dwellings, 30% social dwellings. Right. That's the kind of golden ratio. It's 70-30. So it's basically in other areas around the world. So let's say Germany and Denmark and Holland. Um, there's been a lot of research done that demonstrates that that policy is explicitly an ethnic cleansing policy. It's because you're more likely to be a person of color from a culturally linguistic diverse background. 
and you live in a, on a public housing estate, when you're moved on and a new population replaces you, you know, that's a form of ethnic cleansing. Um, mm. It's also state-sanctioned gentrification. Um, so Australia has adopted this policy with zeal. Um, they're really into it. It's, it involves three things, which is a public-private partnership. So they get the private sector to take the lead. And basically the government's role is to relax planning protocols to make it easier to implement this sort of thing. So they take up the planning authority away from local councils. Mm. Um, the second thing is social mix. It introduces a new population. Generally, that population is richer, whiter, and have less kids. Um, and the third thing is it displaces people who are marginalised already and displaces them usually to the kind of outer suburban fringe. Yeah, I mean, like aside from all of the other horrible stuff that uh, that you've just outlined, I mean, the, in, the impact on these individuals getting kicked out of public housing must be extreme, especially if you're, I mean, getting kicked out of your home at all. Mm. But we're specifically talking about the government like selling off public land that's in a really good spot like that you you know in the inner city close to schools amenities and facilities etc and people are getting kicked out to go into the outer suburbs basically yeah um it's it's really concerning for us as researchers because public housing is by definition the most secure housing tenure in the country um, it's paradoxical that we pay, spend so much attention on it because it should be so secure. But what we're seeing now is the, the undermining of that security. So mm. if you're, there's a lot of good Australian-based research that demonstrates if you experienced forced relocation, your chances of experiencing homelessness or economic decline skyrocket. Mm. Um and I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but, you know, something like, you know, your chance of homelessness increased 40% within the first year. Um, with the relocation program for the, our public housing renewal program in Victoria, some of the residents will have to move three times or more because they get moved from the estate that's getting demolished. Yep. They get put into a property that's head leased by the department and it's leased off the private sector for a period of five years, but the renewal takes over seven years. So they have to then move from that lease to another short-term lease. Um, and then if they want to return to the site, then they have to move again back to the site. So that's, you know, kind of minimum of three times you move. Um, yeah. Wow. So forced relocation, if it happens once in your life, your chances of homelessness skyrocket. If it happens three times, we have no idea what happens. Yeah, well. So it's kind of there's a lot of gray areas here. We think that there's a chance here through the renewal program that we're increasing people's risks of homelessness. We're also destroying local communities. Um, we're making the inner city less affordable, and we're reducing the capacity of those renewal sites to actually house people on low income. Um, yeah, I understand. One of the main issues with the renewal program is that they're knocking down this existing public housing, which uh, is really good for families. There might be three bedroom properties there where you can, you know, have more than three or four kids uh, in a house. But these 
new developments that they're putting up in their place will have one, maybe two bedrooms. So those families that have been displaced often don't even have the option to move back there because these places are too small. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's take Walker Street in Northcote as an example. So this site is currently being demolished. If you go down there today, you'll see machinery there knocking down buildings. Mm. Um, there was 86 dwellings on that site, and that included three and four bedroom dwellings. Mm. They're replacing that with, I think, 95 or 94, something like that, 10% increase in dwellings is mm. what's going to happen. The government is saying, and the developer and the architect and the community housing provider are saying, isn't this great? We're increasing the stock on this site by 10%. And mm. we say, well, actually you're not um, because you're replacing it with one and two bedrooms, which means that less people can actually be accommodated on that site than what was currently there. So yeah. the capacity of the site is reduced. You can actually house less people on that site. But also, if you're in public housing and you have more than two children, you are more likely to be a person of colour and from culturally diverse background. Yep. So you move out, you're displaced. You don't have the option to return because there's no non big enough dwellings for you. So that means that we're seeing the wholesale exclusion of diverse people from that space. Yep. <clears throat> and who takes your place is someone who is it's you know who can accommodate a one or two bedroom, which is someone who's more likely to be white and single. Yeah, like it's not a very good, it's not a solid argument in the sense because you're arguing over um, you know which poor people deserve what, but um, at the same time, demographically we are seeing a shift where the site is widening. There's less children coming back to the site. And if you're saying that this whole program is based on social mix, well, you have to understand that when diverse groups mix with each other, it's primarily because of the children. The children do all the mixing. I think if anyone has a dog and goes to a dog park, they know that the dog is what makes you encounter other people. It's not you. You might be an introvert, but you get a dog, all of a sudden you're an extrovert. <laughs> like it's kind of the same with, with with kids in a way like kids do all the work of mixing they mix mm. different people um and so if you have less kids on this side you're going to have less mixing and so mm. what we've seen on the carlton um estate when that was redeveloped the researchers that went in there and did the evaluation said the type of mixing that is occurring with social mix is basically not occurring people are not mixing with each other and the relations are tectonic, they said. So they're like, if you can imagine two tectonic plates just sliding past each other and not actually mixing, but just grinding right. against each other. That's how they describe the mixing. Wow. So, um, yeah, so that's what's happening on 11 estates in Melbourne prior to the budget announcement. Mm. I think your earlier point about uh, you know, developers and government claiming that they're increasing the housing stock, but actually realistically they are overall reducing the capacity of those sites to house people uh, is probably a great segue into talking about this new announcement because there's a lot of spin going on. There's a lot of this kind of like, look at all this amazing work we're doing in public housing. And then if you dig under the surface, it turns out there's a, there's a lot of like yeah. fuzziness uh, in the numbers, a lot of, um, 
yeah, a lot of obfuscation, basically. Um, so it's this has been announced. It's being called Victoria's big housing build. They're saying that they're spending. Mm. The Victorian government is saying that they're spending five point three billion dollars uh, on this new housing policy, and a lot of that money is supposed to be going to social housing. Um, at the moment, it hasn't been fully announced because it's going to be officially announced as part of the Victorian budget, which is happening next week on the 24th, I think. Um, but one of the top line, aside from the $5.3 billion, which they're claiming that they're spending, one of the top line claims here is that they're going to create 12,000 new social housing homes. Um, is that true from what you've seen? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> Short answer, no. Yeah. Um, all right. So immediately they say, Okay, $5.3 billion, 12,000 homes, biggest ever social housing spend. All right, so... Let's oh, just... yeah, they're calling it the biggest housing social housing spend in Australian history. Yeah. yeah that's one of their other big taglines. Yeah. yeah, I mean, no doubt, they're actually spending quite a bit of money on this. And I think if you're an economic rationalist, which I'm not, but if you are, you would be <laughs> asking serious questions about cost-benefit analysis. Are you getting value for money? Like $5.3 billion, on a jobs package that give, puts people back to work and all that, great. Um, and if that's what this policy is, then it actually works as a jobs package. But as a housing mm. package, it's atrocious. Like, it doesn't work at all. Yep. Um, so, all right, 12,000 homes. So they said that 2,700 of that will be affordable or market. So, all right, that's immediately we discount 2,700. We can come back to what is affordable after in a minute, but sure. we have 9,300 dwellings left. Um, so now you start to do some of the real accounting work and you real, and you have to break down, all right, well, what is what projects have they got lined up? Mm-hmm. Um, so we did some research here at RMIT, myself and Professor Libby Porter, and broke down the elements of the big housing spend. And what they have is basically two aspects to it. Projects that they're starting right now Mm -hmm. and projects that they'll be starting soon in a nondescript, ambiguous future. So the ones that, yeah. So let's just say, all right, within that there's, you know, four components. There's a $532 million spend on renewing six estates. Right. And is that going to be in line with what we've seen with the existing kind of public housing renewal program? Like we can expect the same results? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Tigers find it hard to change their stripes. Um, So, (laughs) you know, the policy ship is moving and it's very hard to turn it around. So we know that they're going to be introducing social mix. They're going to be doing public private partnerships and there will be displacement. So our question (laughs) is, all right, well, how many public housing dwellings already exist on these sites Yep, that you're going to have to knock down in order to replace. So they say, all right, $532 million, we're going to build 500 new social housing dwellings. And we go, okay, 500 is our, is our starting number. When we break it down, we go, okay, let's take Dunlop Avenue and Ascot Vale. There was previously 80 dwellings on that site. Um, Victoria Street in Flemington, 198. Hawthorne, 52. Heidelberg, 60. Ashburton, 56. 
in total, they're going to have to knock down 446 dwellings in order to replace them with 500. <laughs> so that's... So they're actually building 56. 54, yeah. 54. 54 new homes is what you're actually getting. They're saying they're going to give you 500, but in actual fact, you're getting 54. So and that's for about $500 million that they're spending. Yeah. It comes come out in a wash. It costs them about $10 million for every extra dwelling we get. <laughs> um, and so we're just like, okay, well, that's just crazy numbers. Like, that's silly. Um, yeah, that's wild. You can break it down even further. So of that 500 dwellings that they said they're going to build, they're all going to be community housing. Now, mm. remember that community housing only has to take 75% of their residents from the Victorian housing, Victoria Housing Register. So oh, yeah. you end up with, I mean, what's that? That's four, uh, yeah, what's 75? 75% of, of 54, 40-something. You end up with a lot less. You end up with less dwellings on that site that can house people off the Victorian Housing Register. So you get a net loss. Yeah, wow. Um, that's that's the only um, aspect of the program that they have actually illuminated to us that they've said, here are the sites and here are the projects. Yeah, right. Uh, the rest, so the rest of it is all kind of like future funds or like this is stuff that we might spend money on in the future and there's less, even less like clarity about where that yeah. money's going to go. Yeah, I mean, right. there's the second aspect of what they're doing now is a $948 million program that they're calling um, the Fast Start Purchase Program. So this Achieve. is going to, it's going to require, so this is a billion dollars, basically. Mm. Um, right, so they say that they're going to get something like 2,600 social housing dwellings out of this. Like, okay, well, you know, the, oh, sorry, 1,600. Our, we're saying, all right, well, you haven't identified any projects yet, so we can't actually verify that. We can't actually do any analysis on whether or not you're going to deliver 1,600. We already know previously that you're actually getting a net loss, so you know mm. we can be sceptical there. But sure. the biggest point to make here is that this is the government giving $1 billion to private developers to encourage them to include social housing within their forthcoming projects. So these are projects that are on the books that developers see as being either marginally viable or unviable or like kind of stalled or whatever. Mm. Um, or they could be completely economically viable and the government saying, we'll pay you money in order to include social housing dwellings. It's like, okay, that sounds reasonable um you know a lot of policy policy thinkers and researchers think that you know that's that's somewhat reasonable you know around the world we've seen spot purchasing of properties in order to accommodate people during covid but Mm -hmm. around the world there's also this thing called inclusionary zoning so this is a planning mechanism where the government legislates a minimum amount or proportion 
that a private developer has to include within their developments for social housing. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of ensuring that all future housing developments include social housing. They okay. usually, like at the very lower end of it, they they, they make that 10%. You know, I think a more reasonable average is about 20% of all dwellings in you know, Western liberal economies with welfare states um, have about 20%. As, as their legislated minimum, it's mandatory. You don't have a way around it. You just have to do it. Mm-hmm. We've been saying, I don't know, for 15 years to the government, you need to include this as just a matter of course. We need mm-hmm. a mandatory inclusionary zoning principle within our planning system. Instead of doing that, they said, actually, rather than legislate it, we're just going to give the private developers a billion dollars to do it. Like... You, you don't have to give them the money. You can just legislate it. You could tell them to do it. You're literally the government. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a bit of a hand. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, to like, to make this massive funding announcement and then you barely have to scratch under the surface to find that like a cool billion of it is going straight into the hands of private developers. It's so kind of like, mm. I don't know, like to to try and get the sort of like progressive capital of like, yeah, we're doing stuff about public housing. And then it's just, no, you it's exactly what governments have been doing for decades in this country. You're literally just giving money to the private sector. Yeah. That's all that's, that's all that seems to be happening here. Yeah. And it alludes me why the government are dripping in progressive capital. I don't know why they have so much of it. Um, is it because they, I don't know, is it euthanasia? Is it like the fact that they announced that you're going to be allowed pets in your rental and hang pictures? It's like, wow, <laughs> amazing. Like, um, but they have a lot of it and it's hard to criticise them. But this that's only half of the programme. The other half mm. is, all right, there's $1.38 billion being lumped into capital grants for community housing to do their own thing. Um, okay, fine, whatever. Like they reckon there's going to be 2,200 new social dwellings there um, mm-hmm. uh, or more actually maybe, but um, it's just one of them things where just like, who knows? It's like in the future, mm. it'd be very, it'd be interesting to see what happens. But we know that from previous iterations of the same program, um, which they initiated in 2017. They promised over 2,000 dwellings in five years. By 2022, so far, zero have been built. Um, wow. So it's like, oh, okay, well, we'll see. Um, and then the last component is basically uh, $2.14 billion given um, as land gets to the private sector and community housing. So it's basically just a mass... Um, gifting of public land. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like a real Trojan horse. This entire announcement, um, yeah. and like even the, those parts of it that, that might you might be able to kind of view as positive if you're squinting, kind of have so many question marks around them, and all seem to have this, uh, if not an outright like preference for community housing, then at least leaving a lot of wiggle room so that they can preference community housing over public housing. Yeah, and I think within the safe public housing collective, um, there is 
the view that this is the biggest moment in the government's exit from social housing. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, if you were to tie this up in a broader sort of political discourse, this is the neoliberal moment for housing. Um, This is where we're seeing the wholesale shift of the capacity to provide public housing or social housing um, just completely eradicated and Mm. the responsibility to those residents being completely redistributed to the private sector. So, you know, the private sector have a habit of individualizing responsibilities. So, you know, government shifts responsibility to the private sector, the, the private sector then shifts that responsibility onto the tenant. The tenant becomes responsible for every single outcome that happens in their life, including eviction. And then therefore we find it yeah. much more easier to demonize them. Yeah. And the end result of this is you're going to see, you know, there's going to be less places for people who need housing to go and far more uh, people ending up on the street as a result of being pushed out of their existing housing or being put in housing where, where that is more precarious than actual public housing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean we're already seeing it. Like there's over a hundred thousand people on the Victorian housing register. That's growing. Um, right. As soon as the eviction moratorium ends in March, um, we're going to see mass evictions. Mm. Um, when JobKeeper and JobSeeker ends completely, we're going to see complete economic destitution for a whole bunch of people. Mm. Um, it's it's going to get worse, and mm. it's a shame that there will actually, in the midst of all that, there'll be nowhere for people to live. Mm. Well, I was going to try to wrap this up by asking you if there was like anything positive that we could take from this announcement. But after that, um, the last couple of minutes, I'm guessing the answer is probably not really. Um, yeah. But uh, sorry, go on. Well, there's, I guess the point is that you can't rely on good policy to come about. And you can't, and when yep. these announcements happen, you can't then say, that's great. We can now coast. We're doing mm. good. Um, there's a lot of people who assume the role of seeking the, the narrative, the continuous narrative of where this policy is, where it came from, where it's going. They're all activists. The people who have the responsibility of imagining a better future and critiquing the dystopian current they're all activists and they all have lost faith in the policy. I think that the most positive thing that can come from this is that people say, okay, good policy is a bit of a myth. Um, when it, there's, there's nothing holding the government to enacting good policy when it comes to poor people. Mm. Why would they? There's no votes in it. Mm. So I think the positive thing is for people to get disappointed and then join in the housing struggle because the housing struggle, you know, if we think back 40, 50 years, we had, you know, a pretty solid labor movement where people joined in, you know, you know, the, the kind of the revolutionary space was the workplace. Well, Mm. it's no longer going to be the workplace. It's going to be the home. Mm. And people need to start understanding that that's where politics happens is in the home now. 
and mm. you don't have one, you have a you have a chance of losing your political voice. Yeah. Well, thank you, David, for that um, really informative breakdown of this policy, and also, um, you know, giving us a, an overview of the state of social housing in Victoria, but also in Australia, and of course. Um, describing how this fits into the global picture as well, that this is, um, you know, an international capitalist neoliberal project that, um, you know, this is the kind of way that we're seeing it happen locally. But, you know, I think we need to understand this is a global issue. Um, but, uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Um, and uh, where can people find you and Save Public Housing Collective if they want to support or get involved with uh, some of this, these fights around social housing? Yeah, um, well, Save Public Housing Collective is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We also have a website. Um, they can find uh, resources on that website. They can also find some of my work and Libby Porter's work um, on the internet, I think you just have to Google it. But um, you know, on the RMIT yep. South Urban Research website, there's a few things. Um, I think that in order to join in the fight, there's just have a, have a look for the different types of um, movements that are happening around housing. And there's the Renters and Housing Union that have sprung up because of the rent strike that happened the, earlier this year and the resulting precarity around housing. So there's things happening. Yeah. I think people just need to seek it out and join in. Fantastic. I think that's great advice. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> that was uh, really good, Zach. I really enjoyed that interview. Um, there was sort of a uh, sharp right turn when he said ethnic cleansing the first time. And I was kind of like, oh, that's what this interview is going to be like. Uh, and yeah, it was it was incredible. I really enjoyed his voice. I'd like him to do audiobooks so I can fall asleep to him talking. Um, and also mm, I'll I found it, it very, uh, like, inspiring. And uh, uh, I, I'm I glad to hear that because I felt like it, it was, might it's quite dark. <laughs> yeah, it was. But, you know, um, I, it, yeah, made me want to go and, like, volunteer well, yeah, for the I mean, Safe Public make, Housing It should make you angry. Yeah, it's, a, it's honestly it's an issue that I'm still educating myself on. But the more I read into it, the fucking angrier I get. And we focused obviously on Victoria in that mm, conversation, mm. Uh, but as we said, this is you know essentially a global policy, you know, as David says, throughout Western yeah, liberal democracies yeah. that have any kind of a welfare system. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to mention uh, that we said that we would get to with the interview but didn't end up doing was um, talking about the definition of affordable housing, mm -hmm. which is another thing that is supposedly included under this big housing build. What affordable housing is, the definition is 80% of market value, which is like the That's idea of calling money. that affordable yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, but definitely uh, check out David on Twitter and uh, if you're interested as well to check out the uh, Safe Public Housing Collective's work, they do fantastic work and they're a bunch of really cool people as well. Um, cool. Well, uh, before we update you on the lives of our dogs, uh, why don't we finish up with a little bit of the business, Noon? For sure. Okay, so we got a new review this week, which is lovely. Uh, leaving reviews is a really great way to support the show. Um, the best place to do that is um, Apple Podcasts, but wherever else you can do it. Um, you can like, rate, subscribe, share 
tag people in our posts, like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Ozpol Snackpoard. Snackpoard? Yep, that's our <laughs> new name. <laughs> at Ozpol Snackpoard. Um, do you want to yep. read out this review we got? Yeah, let's do it. So this is from Autistic Database, um, titled Quality Content That Pulls a Young Demographic. Three stars, which... It's a glowing review, so I'm not, like, mad about the three stars, but, like, you could give us five. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to look a, a gift review in the mouth. So, anyway, this, this, is, this is what Autistic Database says. Quality content from some amazing people who are doing a great thing by pulling a young demographic into the world of politics. Encouraging young people to get involved and invested in Australia's political climate is a very important thing, and the use of memes to do this keeps the tone of the show from going too dark. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you so much. I hope that's and, uh, true. Sorry about this particular episode regarding the memes. Yeah, not not that many memes. Probably quite dark. Yeah. But this the point about you know, and I think you know, maybe kind of what you were talking about before in terms of like what m- you found inspiring about that interview with David mm, is that he kind mm. of outlines the fact that uh, uh, that housing is going to be a major point of social struggle totally. um, for yeah, the left going soon. forward. And yeah. I think that's kind of what's exciting about yeah. listening to him talk. And describing those issues and realizing that, yeah, fuck, I mean, this is going to be like, this is something that we need to fight for. Mm, it's really, mm. it's an issue that is massively up underrepresented, I think, in uh, broader conversations. So, yeah, hopefully you feel somewhat inspired to look into that. Um, otherwise, yeah, uh, if you really love what we do and you want to f- support us financially, you can do so for uh, less than one US dollar. No, you can do so for... Exactly uh, one US dollar. As little as one US dollar a month over on Patreon, uh, which gives you one bonus episode a month plus some other cool stuff as well. Uh, and with that said, now it's time for How's Bagel been? Warm? He's been so warm. Yeah, it's extremely warm. Listeners, I'm not uh, probably many of you know, but not all. I live in a, um, a shed, which is one piece of metal thick. Uh, and it gets quite hot. Uh, and little Bagel, he's a, a nuisance boy and can't be like out unattended in the yard by himself. Um, so he's been a very hot dog. But we do actually have another shed, which is kind of our like crap storage shed. Um, and it's got stone floors. And I came out the other day, it was like 38 degrees. I was looking for him. He wasn't in his bed, couldn't find him anywhere. I went into this other shed and he was just like stretched out flat on the stone like pavers as much surface area directly on, on the like cold stone as possible concrete, looking yeah. like extremely pleased with himself uh and <laughs> that was extremely oh, cute work, bagel. yeah so i'm uh, uh my plan is to like practice having him hang out in there by himself so he gets used to it and then hopefully i can like leave him in there instead of in my room uh and he can enjoy the cold stone floors and like not overheat too much um when, when he has to be locked up by himself nice Clever boy. Yeah. What's been going on with Big D? Well, he hurt his foot. Um, Yeah, he cracked open one of his little paw pads. Oh, fuck. um, Which means that he's had to have his cone on all week. And when Dante has his cone on, it just makes him so fucking depressed. Like, Mm. it it just makes him so despondent. And he's always looking at you like, why is life pain? Why? It's true. I've seen that facial expression on him. He... Yeah. It's also if you're eating something. Is... You're also that. Yeah, yeah. Um, why would you neglect only just a small Dante? Um, 
So yeah, his foot's been bandaged up. He's been in the cone and just came off yesterday. So he's fine now. Um, but it's been a very sad week of him bumping into stuff, knocking shit over, um, clocking me in the shins repeatedly and making a whole bunch of noise whenever he does anything. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, oh. Classic Dante. I mean, he doesn't need a cone to do any of that. No, to be no. Fair. But it just um, uh, extra. Yeah, it, it was real, real extra Dante plus some extra sad. But he's fine now um, and uh, enjoying his newfound freedom by lying completely stationary uh, on our floor uh, mm. for much of the day because he's black and it's really, really hot for him all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so cool. that probably brings us to the end of the show. Uh, fucking bumper episode this week. Oh, yeah. Big yep. one. Yep. Um, thank you very much for tuning in and sticking with us, if you did so, all the way through, which if you're listening to this, you did. Presumably so you did. I could could have said thank you without a caveat. Um, <laughs> and you're probably wondering at this point, why don't you wrap up this show? Because it's been so fucking long. And to that I say... You know, in for a penny, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we'll catch you next week. Make sure that you stay cool and uh, keep on snacking in the free world. Fuck cops, crunch, crunch. Well said. Going for the classic. <laughs>